Okay, welcome back and welcome to week three of IMC 600. I hope everyone had a good week since our last podcast. Just a quick reminder that we will have our live chat with Josh Curcio this week. So to get us started here, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about context and analytics. The chapter we focused on today uh, about markets and segmentation really underscores in many respects what I was getting at about with your situation analysis, in that the situation analysis gives you information about the world you're operating in, or as I like to look at it, it gives you some context. Essentially, and this is a point that I'll be making again, you guys as marketers are at an incredible time within this line of work, especially when it comes to gathering information and data and figuring out what it all means. As the book said 50 years ago, which was the 1970s, the ability to collect in-depth information and data was a very difficult task. Yes, I recognize things have drastically changed, but that is exactly my point. To get information from 100 people 50 years ago was a very long process. Figuring out potential customers was a lot less difficult than figuring out actual customers. Figuring out your actual customer base took a lot of legwork. To my understanding, it wasn't uncommon to see marketers standing in grocery store aisles or at stores keeping track of who bought their products. Now, you can get information either directly through something like a survey or indirectly through something like a market report on 100 people incredibly quickly. If you send out a survey to hundreds or thousands in an email, it's not unreasonable to think of getting 100 replies back within an hour. So analytics will likely play a role in your careers, both in with what you're doing and who you'll be working for. Analytics are information derived from data. So it, it tells us info like frequency of use or sales, um, in, you know, tracking sales or even things like web traffic. The same methodologies for things like monitoring web traffic or sales performance can and likely will be applied to you as a marketer in the campaigns you've developed. Um, I have friends who, you know, a bunch of friends who work in marketing, and uh, this type of thing happens a lot uh, in marketing agencies uh, when you're dealing with a lot of customers. It's a way for them to track what's going on and how you're doing. But that's why I firmly believe it's extremely important to remember context when looking at these things. No market, customer segment, product, or company operates in a vacuum. As we discussed and read about, and you each looked at in your situation analysis, many factors contribute towards data and information you'll be collecting or evaluating. Um, for instance, uh, just an example that I can come up with is uh, one of my buddies, uh, he works at an uh, inbound marketing agency, and they have a lot of clients. One of the clients that he was assigned to sells vacuum furnaces. Um, I don't exactly understand what a vacuum furnace is or what it does other than getting really hot and vacuuming. I, you know, I don't know. Um, but what I can tell you about it is that it is very, very sophisticated equipment. Through the marketing campaign that my friends developed with them, this company hopes that it will generate one sale a year. Now, one sale a year, it doesn't sound like a lot. On paper, it's a single check mark against a host of marketing activities that were completed. 
some bosses may look at and, and some companies may look at one sale uh, in a year as a failure. But in the case of this company and for the context, um, that one sale of one furnace a year is mostly profit to the company and it makes up a large component of its budget. The context for this company is that, um, to continue with that, is that the market this company deals in is very stable and its product doesn't have to sell every day and that's okay. But what they are working towards through their marketing efforts is making that one sale. And if they can make two sales a year, they got no problems. Um, looking at a market, you might see profitability is down in one geographic region while up in another. Keeping context in mind allows you to examine things like uh, examine things more realistically and draw better conclusions. Um, an example: uh, Think of it like looking at all of Western New York, and looking at the difference between the city of Salamanca versus the towns of Orchard Park in Williamsville. You need to understand these towns and the things about them to get context before making a conclusion. Looking at these communities. It's not apples to apples comparison. Salamanca, it's one of the most impoverished uh, towns and small cities in the region, while Orchard Park and Williamsville are two of the wealthiest suburbs of Buffalo. Um, another way to look at it could be uh, in car sales. Um, I don't know where you guys are from, though I think one of you is from Bermuda, which is cool. I went on my honeymoon there. It's a really neat place. But um, up here, there's a very... Um, prolific car salesman. His name is Billy Fusillo. Uh, lots of commercials. He's kind of obnoxious and everything. He's got a lot of dealerships around. But let's let's use Billy as our example here. Let's say that last year, Billy sold 100 cars at all his dealerships. And this year, he only sold 80, despite uh, the marketing efforts of this year being a lot more robust than they were in the year prior. On paper, if you're to compare these two years, that comes down to it comes down to that there was a 20% decrease um, in car sales. But context, maybe there was a recession. Maybe Billy has started selling Humvees or all electric vehicles. Maybe a new high-speed rail system opened up for the entire region and people are starting to drive less. Or the cars he sells now are ones that last a lot longer. Context. Um, context in analytics can uh, be applied uh, to understanding uh, consumers. There are a lot of ways to evaluate customers. To me, having those ways um, and the analytical data that you get from it is great, but it lacks the human component. An Excel spreadsheet cannot understand emotion or a person nor can it entirely judge what a customer or target market is going through. Even something like evaluating customer reactions to anything requires context. You have to think, is this real or is it legit? Or is it real or, or legit? Or are people trolling you? So with that, um, going through this chapter, um, I'm reminded of the chaos theory. You might remember Jeff Goldblum talking about it in the first Jurassic Park movie. Um, or for a more, more, little bit more recent example, um, the butterfly effect theory, uh, which was also a movie. Um, in its simplest terms, uh, the chaos theory or butterfly effect theory 
is that the smallest change in an environment can have drastic consequences. Um, you know, with the butterfly effect, it's that the, a butterfly flying in one part of the world, uh, beating its wings, the air that that produces, the air movement, can essentially snowball and create a hurricane in another part of the world. Um, as we get into this chapter a little more, uh, one of the things that struck me about it was that initially the book did not uh, speak indefinite or absolutes. It used words like may, could, or should. Buyer behavior, behavior in a consumer market is erratic. There's almost no way to make an absolute 100% correct prediction about what um, consumers will do. The best we can do is make educated guesses. And we do that through things like a situation analysis or a SWOT analysis. We also do that uh, through research and col uh, collecting primary data or looking at what customers have done in the past. That said, there are some definites that we can keep in mind as marketers. Figure 5.1 in the book does a good job outlining the consumer process, the evaluation of needs and wants, and the activities in a general sense of what we as consumers do to make a purchase. So for an example here, um, let's say my definite is that I'm hungry. Um, the things that I have to consider is uh, what I want to eat versus what I should eat. Uh, my context is that payday is a week away, and my other context is that I'm also out and about right now, and I won't be home for some time. So I go through the buying process without realizing it, because no one consciously thinks that way when making a purchase, and I ultimately decide that, well, I'm going to get the apple at 7-Eleven rather than go to McDonald's and get a cheeseburger. So... Uh, when we think about consumers, there are several factors which affect their buying process and how it all plays out. First is the decision-making complexity. Um, you know, something like uh, buying a candy bar is a lot less complex and drawn out than buying a house or a car. As a marketer, you're trying to help the customer or consumer make the right decision. You also have your individual influences, and this is an important factor. It's things like age, lifestyle, occupation. Uh, if you're married, uh, if you're married with kids, if you're single, um, it uh, determines how people think of their wants and needs. Uh, you also have social influences, and that's what others think: um, where the customers come from, who are their friends, what value do their families have. And then you have your situational influences, and that is what the consumer is up to in a given moment of that purchase. I'm not sure that one of these is more important than the other, but I would offer that in this day and age, social has become a pretty damn important one. Um, you see things now with just how social media is, you know, the FOMO, the fear of missing out. Um, there are people out there, and I'm sure that each of you know a few of them, who half the reason that they do anything or purchase anything or go anywhere is to show the world on social media and get likes. They want that affirmation. They want to know what other people think about them, and they hope that it's, that it's good. Um, the book spends some time on business markets, and so will we. As the book states, there are similarities to consumer, market at, consumer markets, but there are differences. In my view, business markets are somewhat more stable and predictable because the company you're selling to is likely already reacting to customer demands and has done its homework. 
kind of the business to business model. Um, in the business market, there is a process, and the process, I'll just quickly go over it, is problem recognition, developing product specifications, identifying vendors, seeking bids, selecting a vendor, getting the order, and evaluating the vendor. Um, as a former reporter who covered governments, um, when I was reading this part, I was just reminded of, of that, in that municipalities and governments, they go through this process all the time. That's just how they do business. So understanding the consumer and business markets guides us in market segmentation. It helps us determine what market segment we're going after and how we're going to do it. And a lot of the time, especially in consumer markets, we're making these decisions, these segmenting decisions in pretty much real time. Um, a good example that I can um, think of is uh, Canticle Farm. Um, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with Canticle Farm, but just the quick overview of it is it is a, it is a farm. Uh, it's associated with the university. They grow vegetables and uh, uh, they use organic methods and the, the sales support their mission. A lot of volunteers help out there and everything. It's where I get a lot of my vegetables from. It's, it's actually really great. But um, their target market is essentially anybody who wants to eat healthy and wants to eat fresh produce and uh, get it um, from a place where it's ethically sourced and it supports a good mission. But when they segment down, they can kind of do that by the vegetable, uh, which is interesting. And I remember talking to one of the uh, managers there, and he was telling me how they have to really pay close attention. A few years ago, you might remember kale was the really big vegetable. Every health nut um, and person looking to get healthy was eating or drinking kale. In paying attention to uh, trends and everything, they were able to uh, quickly and fortunately or uh, quickly determine that uh, a vegetable bok choy, whatever that is, uh, was becoming the next kale. So as quickly as they could, they planted the bok choy and added that to their product offering and it sold very well for them and I think it still continues to. So there are classic ways of segmenting, and they may seem kind of dated, but they are tried, trusted, and true. First, you have mass marketing, which uses a campaign aimed at the whole market and assume, assumes everyone has the same needs and wants. Think about maybe like a grocery store um, in general, and that everybody's got to eat. You also have differentiated marketing which divides markets into groups of customers with similar needs and develops a campaign that appeals to a few of these groups. Then you have niche marketing, which is very focused on a specific segment and a specific need. Because of where we are with the ability to reach customers and collect data, we can get into individual segmenting. Segmenting, excuse me. Let me just grab a drink of water here. Traditionally, uh, we reach customer segments through one-on-one -on -one marketing. You see this a lot in luxury items. Um, I like to think of it, it's like the difference between getting a haircut at your local supercuts versus going to the salon and having a hairstyle, hairstyling encounter. Um, or you can think of it like Amazon, in that they keep track of all of your purchases, and when you are uh, getting to the, to the checkout, there's all of a sudden these other products that are added that you could bundle with or 
ads start appearing for similar you know products they think would be of interest to you because of your buying history. You have uh, mass customization, which makes a product or service to meet the needs of individual customers on a mass scale. I like to think of that like um, Apple. When um, you're going to buy your MacBook, um, they have your base level MacBook, but then as you're going through buying it, all these different options come up, uh, the add-ons for it. And you have permission marketing, where the customer chooses to be marketed to. That is that pre-checked box when you're registering for something or completing a sale that says, yes, of course, I would love you to email me your newsletter or any information about what you guys are up to. I think that you're going to be dealing, uh, contending with permission marketing more and more because of how easy it is for us to tune in and tune out. You see this now, um, and I started to see this one the first time that I caught this course uh, with Facebook, in that um, they are trying to compete with people tuning in or tuning out. So when you go to watch that video, um, there is that ad that plays first. And if you click out of the browser window, don't worry, the ad's going to pause for you until you come back. So successful segmentation, while challenging, can be achieved as long as it meets these criteria. That it's measurable, sustainable, accessible, responsive, and viable. I would argue that responsive is the most important, uh, though I wouldn't you know, fight to the death on that or anything. But given the fluidity of consumers, if you can't adjust quickly, you're going to have a world of problems. Kind of goes back to the chaos theory. Identifying market segments and how we do that is ever-changing. Moving from one campaign to the next requires evaluating what worked and what didn't. In marketing, what we're seeing more now is that identifying a market segment isn't as simple as taking one characteristic or type of person and deciding that's who we'll market to. Now we're seeing complex customer profiles built, built that consider things like behaviors, demographics, psychographics, and geographics. Behaviors are things like how often we purchase, while demographics take into account things like gender, income, and education. Psychographics, that's the how we think. It's that what we do that provides a window in our, into our subconscious and, or what we value, while geographic is where we live. Um, I would direct you guys to revisit um, Exhibit 5.5 in our book, uh, The Vale's Consumer Profile. Uh, that's got some good stuff that I think uh, is worthy of taking a second look at, or a third look. So target marketing. Um, once we have segmented our market, only then can we effectively select our target market. The segmentation allow process allows us to determine which segment is the most attractive and provides the justification as to why. Then we can go forward in selecting our target market. With that in mind, we can determine our approach and the strategies we'll use to reach our target. And there are five basic strategies, which I'll just quickly mention here. The single segment, selective targeting, mass marketing, product specialization, and market specialization, which, as I said, you can all take a look at in your book again. Like most things in marketing, selecting a target market has become more complex. Uh, when I was in this program, I don't want to say that it was simple, but it certainly wasn't like what you guys are contending with. Uh, when we selected our target market during my, you know, back in my day, 
we provided some data and information and an explanation of who the target market was and why we selected it. And that was kind of it in a nutshell. Um, now, target market, uh, target profiling has become the standard. It's taking a really deep dive into who the target is, what they're up against, and what makes them tick. It even goes so far when you're creating this profile to name that person. It's creating a persona so you really understand who, who you're trying to reach here. Uh, Josh Curcio, he's going to spend some time on that with us in our live chat, and uh, you'll actually do this in one of our upcoming assignments. So with that, let's get into Chapter 6. All right, so moving right along here, uh, Chapter 6. This chapter was, um, it was challenging. Um, at least, I found at least the first half of it was pretty dry, and the entire chapter was just full of a lot of information. Still, there's a lot of good stuff in it, so let's get right to it. So the marketing program consists of four elements, product, price, distribution, and promotion. While all marketing campaigns are different, a good strategy does consider all four of these elements rather than just focusing on only one. That's not to say that in your campaign, one element can't, uh, can't be more robust than the others or get more attention. I do want to talk about the Barnes & Noble example. The text cited strengths and weaknesses of the company against its major competitor, Amazon. I think that my favorite line in that was how Barnes & Noble wasn't worried about Amazon at first. Obviously, they should have been. This example shows what happens when tradition meets innovation and the cataclysm that can occur. A simple Google search of Barnes & Noble's financial performance will show you just how bad it's gotten. I think it's fair to say that what's happening to Barnes and Nobles, or Barnes and Noble, is exactly what happened to Blockbuster. You may remember Blockbuster turned down buying Netflix years ago. There are a lot of reasons as to why Barnes and Noble is a shadow of its former self. Growing up, I remember Barnes and Noble as a really, really cool place. Um, it still is. I haven't been in one in a few years. I remember I found one a couple years back and was really excited and went in for old time's sake. But uh, when they were big, um, or more prevalent rather, um, it was the closest thing that we in Western New York had to a media play after that chain went belly up. Um, if you don't know what media play is, it was one of the coolest places. Um, you guys can look it up, but it was probably my favorite store growing up. I do think this example proves the point that keeps coming up in this class and that will and will continue to. Consumers are ultimately the ones in control. There was a shift in how we got our products and and the convenience that we've opted into to get getting our products. And it's going to be this way for a long, long time. I don't know if someone like my four-year-old will ever know a world in which she'll need to buy an entire CD to just get one song or not have immediate access to thousands of shows and movies. I'm actually quite jealous of her. When I was growing up, um, I didn't have cable, and we only had four channels where I lived. So um, so moving right along, let's talk about product. Many major firms out there have a portfolio of products, uh, various product lines, or a mixture of products. 
There are several benefits for a company in pursuing this route, such as not relying on just one product to stay afloat, brand recognition, economies of scale, and distribution efficiency. Think of it like Toyota. They have a line of cars, the Camry. Uh, you have your standard, your sports, and your luxury editions of the car. But Toyota also has a wide product mix. They sell sedans, trucks, SUVs, and hybrids. As marketers, you may be called to the table to discuss the depth and breadth of a company's product line or product mix. The discussion may be on issues like, are we spreading ourselves too thin? Can we effectively market a broad line of products or a wide mix of unrelated products? How quickly are we able to react to customer demand? Do we have the resources to have multiple marketing campaigns going? Or do we have the resources to market to multiple segments or target markets? Services are difficult in some respects as you're not uh, dealing with something that's tangible. In most cases, you're marketing an experience. Uh, issues to consider in marketing services are um, services often depend on the customer or his or her possessions being there for the delivery. Think of like the uh, Jiffy Lubes where you get your uh, oil change, where you pull right into the garage, they do it, you never even leave your car and you're out of there in 10 minutes. Or if you hired somebody like a house cleaner, um, your stuff has to be, your house has to be there for them to clean your stuff. Um, there's also that customers have no way to evaluate the quality of the service until after delivery. Like, for example, a haircut. Um, you don't know how good your haircut is going to be um, until it's done. You might be watching the uh, barber or stylist and kind of as you're going, as you're getting your haircut, you might see that it's not looking good or that it is looking good, but you're not going to have a, be able to make the final call on if it was good or not until, until it's done. Um, and recommendations from people can only go so far. Even now, online reviews aren't exactly trustworthy. There are people out there who make their living by being commissioned by companies to write great reviews about its products online. It's actually kind of become an issue. Um, and then the other thing to consider is that standardization of a service and its delivery is kind of difficult to achieve. So let's move right on to pricing here. While pricing is the key component of revenue generation for a firm and is the easiest thing to change, it's often the most complex part of a marketing campaign. Essentially, you have to balance what increasing or decreasing a price means to a company's bottom line. Decreasing a price lowers the amount of anticipated revenue, which in turn affects the budget, and that could mean less capital to work with going forward. Companies may choose to look at other elements of their business and where they can make reductions to make up for that revenue shortfall. Conversely, increasing a price is risky and should not be taken lightly. There may be, if you raise the price, there may be a short-term influx of cash, but that is no indicator that the money will keep rolling in that way. Customers may start searching for alternatives. Maybe the store brand of cola isn't so bad after all. Maybe, you know, we don't want to pay that type of money for Coca-Cola or Pepsi. You also have to consider the perceived value. Value means different things to different people. And some companies have built their business on equating value with uh, lower or lower prices, or the lowest prices. Think of uh, Walmart, save money, live better, or Aldi. 
other companies have marketed the high cost of their products as the value. Think of uh, luxury products. Um, when I was uh, in undergrad, um, I minored in marketing, and I actually studied abroad in Ireland. And uh, while I was in Ireland, I took uh, my the courses. I took marketing courses there, and I had this one phenomenal professor there. I'll never forget him. His name was uh, Aidan Daly, and um, he was a uh, he. The course was actually marketing of services, and he told us this story uh, when he was talking about uh, pricing and value, about how he had a friend who um, there there was this really really expensive restaurant in town, um, and uh, he was talking to one of his friends, and through their conversation, it came out that the friend had just bought that restaurant, and uh, you know the professor uh, Professor Daly said you know oh you, you know you own I don't know what to call the restaurant. You own that restaurant? Good Lord, you know, that that's the most expensive place in town. And his friend looked at him and said, I know, that's the whole point. Um, and it, you know, it, it wasn't that the food was um, the greatest food in the world or anything like that, but there was that perception of, of high quality and value because it was the most expensive place in Ireland, or in, not in Ireland, but it was the most expensive place in town. Um, when making decisions on pricing, it's important to keep a holistic view of the customer base and your target market and understand who they are, where they come from, and what's important to them. Going back to what I was saying earlier in this podcast, context. People are money conscious, and it's not hard for them to price shop. Even in a store looking at your product, they may choose to compare prices on their phones to similar products. Or look at other vendors of your product. We all do that. As this chapter points out, marketing of services is tough. Pricing strategy for services has its own challenges, uh, such as uh, service quality is tough to determine prior to purchase. Customers may be unfamiliar with the service process. Uh, customers might be unfamiliar with your brand. Uh, that's like the difference between an independently owned or small hotel chain versus a Hilton. Um, and customers may be able to do the service themselves. Take, for instance, the uh, oil change example. There are plenty of people out there who are just happy to change the oil themselves because they know how to. I don't, but um, um, I probably should learn how to do that and save some money. But um, that's, um, you know, cleaning your house uh, versus hiring a house cleaner. Moving on, there are strategies that we can employ when it comes to pricing. Base pricing as a strategy from an overall business standpoint does allow for consistency. It forces us to consider what our price actually means to a customer. And you can do that through price skimming, price penetra penetration, excuse me, uh, prestige pricing, value-based pricing, and price matching. Uh, Walmart does price matching uh, every day. And you also have your non-price strategy focusing on the quality of a product or the deliverables of a service against those of your competitors. I think of Apple. Um, there, I truly believe that there is a reason that the iPhone is uh, one of the most expensive smartphones on the market, because it works. Um, the same can be said for MacBooks versus um, PC um, laptops. 
I've never had a problem with my with my MacBook, and I don't know any Mac owners who really have. Where I know people who own uh, PC laptops or desktops, uh, PC desktops that have been to hell and back. So, um, there is the other side of base pricing, and that's when you get into adjusting prices more frequently or adjusting prices depending on what's going on. Techniques for this variable pricing, and they may sound somewhat similar to base price strategies, include discounting, reference pricing, uh, price lining, odd pricing, and bundling. So let's uh, move right on to distribution. In many respects, how a product goes from the production line to the customer is the figurative last line of defense for a company. The supply chain can make or break a company. Not only does this ensure that your product is getting to where it needs to be, but also into the hands of your target market. Consider for a moment, what if Amazon's supply chain network started experiencing routine problems affecting a considerable percentage of its customers? What if Walmart or Wegmans all of a sudden wasn't able to adequately stock their stores with a great many items? People would notice. As marketers, we can use our supply chain structure to our advantage, um, and we can do that through things like exclusive distribution, and that's working with just ourselves or one retailer, a specific, you know, having a specific product at a very specific place. Uh, we can do that through selective distribution, and that's working with just a handful of places. Uh, typically, it's people who our company feels would play ball with us if they want to... Um, uh, you know, with things like pricing or even the values that we have. Uh, there's an intensive distribution, and that's maximizing your distribution to get it is your product in as many places as possible. Um, dual distribution for many firms is becoming a more attractive option. You're now seeing brands that traditionally had one method of product delivery branching out. Um, locally here in Olean, um, I don't know if you've heard of these, uh, heard of this brand, but um, Cutco, uh, they make the, quote, world's finest cutlery. Um, for decades, the only way that you were going to get a Cutco knife or Cutco set of knives was through uh, direct sales. Uh, they had a whole, it's, I guess it's kind of a separate company, it's called Vector Marketing, and they employ a lot of college kids. Um, and you would essentially go to a Tupperware party, but it was with Cutco knives, or they would come knocking at your door. Um, in the last, I believe, 10 to 15 years, now Cutco has started to do things a little differently. Yes, these Tupperware parties and the door-to-door -door sales are indeed part of their mix, but they've also opened stores, um, uh, legitimate actual brick-and-mortar stores uh, just to meet, um, you know, to have this dual distribution network to get their product out there in more people's hands. So um, the next section we'll focus on here is integrated marketing communications, uh, the reason that we are all here. Um, given that you guys have taken the intro courses and a few course IMC courses so far, I'm just going to go over a few things here. Um, I, uh, just as a reminder, integrated marketing communications are strategic, coordinated, consistent, and customer-centric. Uh, there are strategic issues in IMC that you'll face as marketers. Uh, one could be a lack of coordination and communication among other elements of an overall marketing program or other departments. Um, no consistency 
with overall marketing program or other departments or the company's mission. You might find uh, that you're being forced to do a rush job on a project and not give it its due so you can come up with an effective campaign. Of course, there's the lack of resources to build an effective campaign as well. When you're developing an IMC campaign, I think it's important to consider the, um, I'm going to say AIDA method, it's the AIDA model uh, that's in the book, and the journey that it takes customers on. As you do things like, uh, it's important to consider that as you do things like select a target market, determine strategies and tactics, or even develop creative. As the book shows, this um, model is the A is for attention, and that's people uh, needing to know what you're selling is a thing and that they need it. Uh, there's interest, which is creating uh, some buzz about the product or service, some curiosity uh, because of its actual uses and benefits, the desire for it, which is the next step from being curious about a product to actually feeling the need for it, and then action, which is the actual purchase. Um, the book talks about advertising. Um, traditional advertising is starting to go the way of the home phone. They're still used, but not like they were. Uh, traditional advertising methods, as I'm sure you can imagine, um, or as I'm sure you know, excuse me, uh, you know, television commercials, newspaper and magazine ads, radio spots. Um, having a home phone doesn't really mean as much as it uh, as it used to, and um, just with the way that the world has changed with, um, you know, how people get their news to how people listen to their music, uh, to how people watch TV shows. Um, it's, it's definitely different for these, uh, the kind of the old fashioned ways of doing it. Um, you're seeing these not, you're now you're seeing more non-traditional methods used more and more and new ones pop up every day. You can't watch a video anywhere without an ad. If you're scrolling through Instagram, there's some type of sponsored content. Podcasts uh, are sponsored by companies or there are little commercials in them. Snapchat, you see it. Um, they, I mean, even with filters, um, you know, companies might sponsor a filter for a day. Um, you see in-app ads all the time. You try to listen to music on Spotify, and if you don't have premium, then you're getting a couple commercials here or there. You see these uh, new ways all all the time, all over the place. In my opinion, IMC helps companies compete with all of this, um, and it creates a holistic plan for marketing a product, and it keeps the message consistent. There are certainly issues. Part of it is cost. Um, it's not cheap, especially with some of these uh, traditional methods. Let me just grab a sip of water here. Um, there's also keeping up with changes and new platforms that pop up and also keeping up uh, with what's appropriate. People's views change pretty frequently. Some ads uh, don't age well. And of course, there's uh, the metrics. It's hard, to it's hard to gauge its effectiveness. Um, though the newer methods of um, advertising actually help out quite a bit with that. Um, if you've ever boosted something on Facebook, it tells you exactly how many people it reached. Um, you know, the same can, I mean, Facebook and Instagram are kind of one in the same, but um, these new methods, you can track website traffic and compare that against sales. It's a little bit, you know, it, these new methods, they make it easier. Um, it, with the old methods, it's actually really hard, and I'm talking TV, radio, and print. Um, 
t- uh, newspapers and TV stations and radio stations, they can only give you estimates about what they think that their audience is. Um, back when I was in newspapers, there was some good thought behind it uh, that a newspaper back in the glory days was uh, a single copy of the newspaper was shared among five people. Um, now I would say probably not so much. Um, and there's even the um, Audit Bureau of Circulations out there because you do see um, newspapers. In fact, w- never mind, but um, you do see newspapers out there that inflate their actual circulation. They'll use that old model where they say, you know, okay, so um, we sold 6,000 papers today, but uh, sci- the, you know, the old method, the old science says that it's passed, each edition is passed among. Um, five people. So our circulation is actually 30,000. Um, you don't know that. So there's the audit Bureau of circulation out there, uh, which regulates that kind of thing to force these uh, companies to actually be honest about what their circulation or their actual reaches. So they're not kind of BSing you with numbers. So moving along, uh, public relations, public relations is a very powerful thing. And a good marketer knows how to use PR to your uh, advantage, and not just in a crisis. Methods of PR uh, PR to consider putting into your uh, campaigns are a press release, feature articles, holding a press conference, maybe event sponsorship, uh, things to do with uh, employee relations. Um, In that list that was in the book, I thought it was kind of funny it didn't mention uh, using social media. Um, You can also do things like acts of goodwill and um, showing that type of stuff off. Um, So one of the greatest PR um, campaigns out there, and I encourage you to look it up, is the Cabbage Patch Doll um, uh, PR because their advertising was not advertising at all. They did not take out ads um, initially. It was all PR. They would do. They would send out a press release that we are having a mass adoption ceremony at this park. You know, usually in a major city, and um, that you know kids are invited. Please come down and take pictures. And the media ate that up and did the marketer or did the advertising job uh, for them. So uh, look that one up. It's a good one. So um, next is personal selling or in the customer engagement. Uh, this is direct interaction with the customer, the person that we're saying, the person who we're saying we care about. Uh, and this is how you develop that uh, personal relationship or loyal brand loyalty that you hope for. Um, it is, however, costly, and it will uh, require coordination with those who are selling your product if you aren't personally the one doing it. Um, to me, and this is just me, the direct selling method is very difficult because uh, speaking as a customer, I find it annoying. Uh, back in the day, uh, direct selling was that door-to-door salesman with vacuum or that person who ambushed you walking around the mall. Um, now, what I've seen um, is that... Uh, excuse me one second. Um, now what I've seen is that it has shifted considerably into the digital realm on uh, primarily on Facebook um, a few years ago uh, when I was doing this course it was particularly a big thing was those um, LuLaRoe pants um, I don't I, I mean they're the leotard pants 
um, that were very popular, and I guess they kind of still are. But there were so many uh, women who I was friends with and women who my wife was friends with that they had bought into it. Uh, you know, it essentially was a pyramid scam, but um, you'd go to log in on Facebook in the evening and you're getting notices that you were invited to this live sales event. And um, there'd be like four or five of them going at a time with uh, with some of our friends where they're on, they're doing their um, live chat. They've got their camera going and are showing the different products. They're doing little, um, little contests during it and stuff like that. And uh, so I've seen that. Um, I've also seen it um, where it's become a little bit more deceptive. Um, there are people out there who they will walk around with um, like reflective vests on and they look like a utility worker and they come and they knock it. They got their clipboard and their ID badge and all that. And they knock at your door and uh, they say, you know, I need to see your utility, your gas bill immediately um, without really identifying themselves. And it, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole ruse. They're part of some pyramid scam out there that's, um, they'll save you money on your electric bill if you sign up with them today. So it's, it's kind of shifted. And, uh, I think, um, at least in my experience, and again, this is just me here, but I find the direct selling method very annoying. Um, and I don't, um, I'm not, I'm not into that. So <laughs> anyway, um, I do think a lot of other people are put off by that, um, as well. So uh, lastly here is part of the IMC is also sales promotion or what you do to incentivize a purchase. Think of it as that call to action that actually works. For consumers, uh, which is what I'll focus on, you see sales promotion at all levels of the supply chain from coupons to in-store discounts to rebates. Uh, it is effective. Uh, that that great deal might be what makes a customer choose your product over another, or that that great deal the store is offering on your product, which doesn't affect your bottom line, draws more customers into the store. Uh, supermarkets, you know, advertisements, uh, you'll see the specials that they run. Uh, it's not just to get you in there to get, you know, buy one, get one on hamburger patties. They're also hoping that you get a gallon of milk as well, or the buns, you can't forget those, or the ketchup. Um, and those type of things can start that long-term relationship and brand loyalty that we hope for. So with that, I think this is a good place to stop. Uh, this, this chapter was a behemoth, a lot of information. Um, I, I know I've said this before with quite a few things, but um, there is a lot of good stuff in that chapter. Um, I would encourage you to even just review the last page of the chapter summary, um, just give it another look. It's, it's certainly worth it. Um, you will probably encounter this stuff in your career as a marketer. So um, as a reminder, we will have another guest speaker coming up here, uh, Tim Blazewski, or it might be Blazewski. I just refer to him as Tim B because uh, I butcher his last name. Um, as I have told everybody uh, when I introduce him, Tim is the man. He's just, he's the man when it comes to branding. I've worked with him on several uh, branding campaigns, he's helped me um, uh, rebrand where I, uh, the Chamber of Commerce where I work. He helped me develop the brand and the brand voice for uh, the Olean business development. Um, he's helped me 
develop branding for a young professionals group that I run. Um, I have my own little communications um, business and help me with that stuff a little bit. Tim, he's just, he's the man. He's been around the block a bunch of times with this. He's got some cool stories. Um, he's exactly the kind of guy you want to hear from about branding. So uh, I'll have details on how to access that on Moodle and uh, just uh, be prepared to, to have a conversation with him. And uh, uh, yeah, that will close out this week for us. Um, you guys know how to get a hold of me if you need anything. And uh, I hope you have a good week and uh, we'll catch up uh, for next week. Well, we'll catch up at the at the live chat probably first. So all right. Talk to you guys later.